Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 174. This week, we talk with Jared Keen about the Mile of Music project. We also cover some of the big announcements from Connect. And why is JSON parsing 10x faster than XML parsing in SQL Server? This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Aspose, the market leader of .NET and Java APIs for file business formats. Natively work with DocX, XSLX, PPT, PDF, MSG, MPP, image formats, and many more. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week we have Jared Keen, a data analytics engineer for Skyline Technologies and a developer for the Mile of Music Festival. Welcome, Jared. Welcome. Happy to be here. Carl, what's going on? So as normal, we want to remind people of our Slack. You can chat to us and other listeners who listen to this fabulous podcast. Uh, you can sign up at slack.msdevshow.com. And then to participate, you can go to msdevshow.slack.com. So mm -hmm. do that. Yeah. And you basically get like full like, concierge service there. Um, anytime you ask a question or comment, um, we're always engaging with everybody. Try to be anyways. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to re, uh, uh, remind everybody, as we are taking away the month of November, uh, December 1st is the end of our Raygun contest. So as a reminder, what is the biggest computer or programming fail, computer programming bug that you have seen or run against or perhaps even created yourself? Uh, let us know. We want to hear about this. Mm -hmm. uh, just as a, a reminder, we will obfuscate the, the details to protect you if uh, that's what you need. But we've got uh, some pretty good submissions so far, and we would really like to uh, make sure everybody has a great chance to win either the full year ray gun license or one of the three swag offerings that they're giving away. And uh, it is not valid if you just email in Carl's code. <laughs> unless you have a copy of it and you highlight my sections maybe if you're the first person i don't know <laughs> cool okay what do we what do we got up next here uh what do we get for the comment of the week uh the comment of the week this week gets a developer small business license for expose.total for.net which includes all of the expose.net products in one package and this week was really hard because we had tons of comments on our website um Regarding the diversity topic that we we talked about, uh, I believe that was with uh, was that with Rachel. There's uh -oh. we've had so many. No, people it was on with Sarah. Listening. Sarah. Sarah. Sarah Walker Betcher. Yeah. So we uh, so I picked one of them, and it was uh, Brad Rembilak. Mm -hmm. And he said, our lack of diversity in our industry makes it too easy for us to fall into groupthink when designing solutions. We overrepresent what we think of as the average user, and we focus on the technology and not the true human experience. Exactly. Uh, there was some really good discussions. We even had uh, some people kind of go back and forth with each other mm -hmm. on each side of it. So I really enjoyed reading those uh uh, those points of view. And remember, you can uh, comment on any episode. Uh, we have a uh, discus or discuss on every post mm -hmm. and it will get you ent entered in to win uh, on the comment of the week. So if you want to get mentioned on the show, like Brad, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com or comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. We really like the five-star iTunes reviews. And just as a reminder, if like Brad, you have been a winner, contact us with your email address so I can get that in. Perfect. Okay, let's jump into the news. We got 
I don't know. We got about three hours of news. So, <laughs> so let's jump in and get started. So the first one here, JSON parsing 10 X faster than, uh, than, uh, XML parsing. And this is in uh, SQL server. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of us think of SQL server and we think of, Hey, it's got a ton of built-in XML tools. And just recently that they've kind of like wedged some JSON support. <laughs> wedged? I hope well, not. You know, well, sometimes, you know, <laughs> they've you added think the of it, functionality. <laughs> well, and, and that's what I'm thinking. I, th- this is the, you know, the thought, you know, that's yeah. what you, you think of sometimes like no, there's this it's very cool. old, there's this very old product. They obviously wedged it, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, on the SQL Server and Tools blogs uh, uh, last week, they mentioned that uh, JSON parsing is 10 times faster than doing the XML parsing. And they even give you uh, some code and experiments to follow. And they even say that, you know, technically the XML is bigger. So, you know, that, you know, does have a little yeah, bit, but it's, it's it's only minorly bigger. So that's really not a factor. Minorly so, bigger. <laughs> minorly <laughs> bigger. I we're, we're, we're developers. We're not English majors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, that's true. Yeah. So but, no, that, that's a good point that like you, you mentioned like wedging it in. That, that is a good point though, because I, I actually think that it, it, pro- it probably does feel like that because SQL server is like the structured data store. And then you're storing this like blob of like unstructured stuff in there. Um, but yeah, I was surprised too. Like it is pretty fast. I'm guessing like anything, it's one of those things though, where you, uh, um, if you, if you try to run a query of like the data inside of there and you do it in a poor way, like y- you're going to suffer through bad performance just because there's really no way to optimize that. Uh, should we move on to the next one? Yeah. Perfect. Introducing Twitter premium APIs. Yeah. So I, I, I know in the heyday of Twitter, when it first came out, there was just, the ecosystem was flush with Twitter apps that, yeah that everybody kind of had. And then uh, Twitter put a, a, a big kibosh on it. They really rein things in. There's still third-party uh, applications. In fact, I always use a third-party Twitter app. But they've also um, been grandfathered in, right? Well, you've either been grandfathered in or you have token limits, which limits how big you can really get. So right. you can't really be, you know, kind of take over the world. You're limited to like 100,000 users or something. Uh, so what Twitter has done is they've allowed um, what they're calling premium APIs now. So it's kind of sitting in between the standard APIs, which we've had for a while, and what they've called their enterprise APIs, which are very, very expensive ways to get access to kind of like the fire hose. Mm-hmm. And this... Uh, is uh, kind of on a on a realm of or a spectrum of there's going to start off with the free aspect, but as you start paying and you'll start paying a little bit more quickly than with the previous uh, API version, then you can you know get to have a little bit more access mm-hmm. than what is available in the standard tier. So if you're one of those uh, people uh, trying to uh, think that you have a better way to make a Twitter client app, but you were kind of distraught on, uh, you know, how they've kind of limited things in the past. You might want to look at these APIs and see what you can do. Yeah. It says, um, it's basically $2 signs instead of $3 signs for the enterprise APIs. <laughs> <laughs> it's a free two $2 signs. Actually I had to look though. So it is, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, it's, uh, it's $149 a month, uh, which is, uh, which is kind of interesting, but it sounds like, yeah, this is more for like, uh, um, not necessarily the fire hose of, of tweets, but to get more of a fire hose type of access. Okay. Well, that's cool. I love, I love more access. Cause I feel like that was, that was really the strong suit of Twitter. And then they 
sort of went a different direction. So it's good to see uh, more and more access there. Uh, GitHub adopts Microsoft's tool for supporting massive software projects. When I saw this, I was like, oh, this isn't anything new because I was reading about the, uh, what do they call it? The GVFS. Yep. But this actually is a virtual file this system. Is, yeah, this is new. So you want to yeah. talk about why it's new? Uh, I just accidentally clicked out of it. Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> Well, it's the adoption by GitHub is the new part. Yeah. So, you know, just as a recap, the Git virtual file system was something that Microsoft created because for Windows, and they wanted to move to Git for Windows, but, you know, apparently it's just like terabytes and terabytes in size just the source code. And uh, there's really no way to really work with that um, locally. I mean, just to pull in, you know, a, a small portion of that um is still kind of tough. And what GVFS allows, um, allows Microsoft to do is to really isolate, um, and, and bring down just what you need for your development piece and by virtual, you know, like, I think, what is it? A hardware uh, driver by virtualizing your hard drive in, 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 and utilizing, uh, that technique, yeah. um, behind the scenes. And you can still, uh, through your client, just interact with it like it was Git. So it just pulls down what you need as you need it. So yeah. um, that's really cool. And Git is adopting it. Um, or GitHub. Yep. GitHub is adopting it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's so. significant because it's just, hey, you know, I know ran, Microsoft isn't necessarily a random company, but, you know, just having a company do it doesn't mean that people have to uh, um, have to sort of respect it or, or pay attention to it. Uh, but now with GitHub endorsing it, I mean, that's that's a massive endorsement. And now you have two big companies, one of them being, you know, obviously the experts in, in Git. And uh, so I, that's why I think that this is uh, is super significant. Yes. And in addition, um, Atlassian has added experimental support to Bitbucket. And it's also if you have Tower, Source Tree, or GMaster clients, uh, they support GVFS. Very cool. Okay. So let's get to the Microsoft Connect announcements. The first one, uh, VS Code Live. Actually, I should say Visual Studio Live Share, which is mind blowing. You want to tell us about this? Yeah. Yeah, so this was one I think that everybody got really excited once they saw the demos. So uh, they showed, you know, pair programming is something that's, uh, you know, been around for quite a few years. But really to kind of take advantage of that, you have to have be in the same room uh, as somebody else, somebody sitting next to somebody, one person driving, one person kind of just sitting there as the back uh, backseat driver kind of just watching and being passive. Uh, what this is, is it's a system where you can actually have both people uh, editing the same document at the same time. So two keyboards, two mice, two monitors, um, and working on the same code. Uh, and it can be from a distance. So you could be across the world. It's not like you have to be on the same uh, local network or VPN together. Mm -hmm. But in addition, it's not just Visual Studio tool. It's Visual Studio and VS Code. And it doesn't matter what OS VS Code is on either. So you could be yeah. on Mac or Linux. And, and you can mix and match. And and mix and match with mm -hmm. any other combination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the demo was so, actually with VS Code and Visual Studio, which I thought was really cool. So, and actually the, the video on this, not to sort of uh, derail this whole thing, but the video of it was very good. And it actually showed like the Docker functionality in VS Code. And it's it's funny because I have uh, the Docker extension for VS Code and I actually never really played around with it much. I didn't realize like the stuff that it does for me. I was uh, I was I was at the command line doing all the same stuff, um, but being able to just click in there and say, do this, do that uh, was pretty cool. So, Jared, how are you going to use this uh, Visual Studio Live Share? 
Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, as soon as you shared this with me, uh, I was really interested in the, the live share. Granted, I mostly live in the database world, so it's a little bit of a, a different discussion for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm getting more opportunities nowadays to work in, in database projects, which if this works with that, um, I think there's a lot of really good opportunities because um, a lot of the people I'm working with on databases nowadays were geographically dispersed, so it would be nice to be able to dig straight into the code side by side and, and figure some of these things out. So I, I, I'm blown away by this right now. And I, I really hope it's uh, as good as it looks. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, we've, you know, I know you and I, Carl have done this over Skype where you're like, Hey, take a, take a look at this code and help me figure out what's going on and be able to send this link and make it so that I don't have to be like, can you hover over a, can you hover over B? <laughs> can you flip back to this? Like I can actually kind of look around and figure out what's going on. And, uh, and then look at values while you're set at a breakpoint. like that is really cool. So, um, I think this is a, a pretty significant feature, um, not to leave like Adam out, but, uh, Adam, uh, the text editor also, I believe added similar functionality. I haven't really looked into it though. Uh, but just kind of giving people a heads up that there is a solution. Um, okay. Xamarin.net embedding. What is this about Carl? This was really cool. So if you have like a, an iOS app, Um, that it's kind of, you know, you've already got the code, it's already Objective-C or Swift or something like that. And you want to, you know, integrate some code that you, you're writing fresh, but you want to do it from C-sharp kind of, there wasn't a great way to do it in the past. Um, but now using .NET embedding, what you can do is have your .NET code, um, be consumed from other programming languages in their environment. So you can have your .NET library converted into something that Objective-C or Android uh, can consume directly. Okay. And as part of that, it's not just like this, you know, you know, vague tool. It's the Embedinator 4000. <laughs> well, you know, it's good because they skipped the first three versions. Yes. Or maybe so. 3,999, depending on how you look at it. So it's a tool that takes the .NET assembly and generates the necessary glue uh, to the to surface the .NET API as a native API, and it works with um, so going from .NET to C, Objective C, and the various Apple variants like Swift and Java across Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. So from any operating system you're on, you can go from .NET to essentially iOS and Android with minimal effort. That's crazy. Crazy oh. cool. <laughs> okay, very cool. And then uh, speaking of Xamarin, Xamarin forms are aligning to the Zan- Zamr- or XAML standard preview. Too many XAMLs and Xamarin's there. Xamarin forms are aligning to the XAML standard preview. Yeah, at Build last year, uh, Microsoft announced XAML standard with the promise to be the, the one XAML to rule them all, mm-hmm. uh, but without any kind of, you know, comment on how it was going to happen. It was really like, hey, we're going to create a, a community where we can take all of our input and make sure we're doing it right. And it looks like some of the first uh, pieces that are being proposed are uh, coming out. And what it's looking like is kind of the WPF slash UWP style of XAML is is kind of winning the day. And mm-hmm. um, when you're in Xamarin Forms, you'll be able to, uh, at least right now, this is not set in stone, um, include um, an, an additional package which, which will allow you to use that style of uh, XAML syntax. So you'll be able to have a stack panel and list view and data template and view cell and stuff like that. 
mm-hmm. like you would in in the traditional Microsoft made uh, XAML. Yep. Uh, you'll still be able to use your Xamarin Form XAML uh, there, but there's going to be um, the proper um, bindings behind the scene to to map this new one to whatever the Xamarin Forms is is using for now. So it sounds like it. Uh, we're gonna get there to the kind of one XAML syntax, but underlying in in Xamarin is still going to be what they've always had. Mm-hmm. So you, if you're using Xamarin, you can use either new or old. But if you're if you're coming to Xamarin from uh, Microsoft technology, uh, this could ease your uh, transition. Okay, next up uh, on the IoT or the AIoT and AI front, AI School Microsoft.com. Yeah, uh, there was a section during the Connect announcements where they were talking about AI, and um, you know, one of the the things I think that's interesting as developers is a lot of us hear that and we're like, yes, we're totally interested in it. I mean, last week we had Jennifer Marsman on uh, to talk all about this, and um, you know, some of us still are like, you know, what what do I need to do? I need to be walked through this. I need to, you know. Somebody needs to show me an example. So if you go to aischool.microsoft.com, there is a bunch of videos and modules and examples to guide you through uh, the AI and ML kind of world just to get you up to speed um, with some real hands-on kind of guided led courses. Yeah, this is very cool. Like I click through and it's having me like analyze like the number of words and something and uh, and it, it it's very detailed. Very cool. And then they have like a GitHub repo that you end up starting with. Very cool. Uh, let's see. IoT Edge. Uh, what do we get? We have, there's like a whole bunch of stuff on IoT Edge. There's a tutorial. Uh, how do you want to tackle this? You just want to talk about Edge all so, up? Yeah, I'm going to talk about Edge all up and we'll just kind of go right through this. But the, if you go to the show notes, we'll have a bunch of links on IoT Edge. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why I have all these links on IoT Edge is because I've been uh, kind of looking at this really deeply, um, being uh, kind of an IOT person myself, mm-hmm. but what we were was announced at Connect was uh, an, a new way to run um, code on your IOT devices or on the edge. Uh, so what this edge is, it's a runtime that has both a uh, communication layer, kind of a, a bus style communication layer, as well as the ability to kind of work with and manage modules and mm-hmm. uh, c- uh, pass on the messages uh, between them over this bus. So what's really cool is n- these modules are essentially images, they're containers. Um, so you can have a Docker container um, that does your core logic and you can have other containers that come from different services in Azure. So you can have kind of like chunks of Azure be converted into these Docker images and pushed down to your IoT devices. Um, Notably, and you can look at the links for more details, is Azure Functions, Stream Analytics, and AI and Machine Learning. So you could have your your core logic that pulls data from your sensors. And instead of sending all that data up to the cloud uh, to get analyzed, you could actually have the ML module sit on your device. You can send your data to that and you can process that locally mm-hmm. and make your decision, one, not only faster, but two, instead of sending all that data up there, you can send just the result up there and save a lot of uh, data charges that you might potentially have. So the edge is something really cool. I think uh, it really plays... It's really a smart choice of technologies with uh, um, containers, mm-hmm. keeping that uh, that 
uh, logic small and contained, but people are used to working with containers. They have a workflow, a development workflow that they're used to on working with that. So I think it's uh, it's a really uh, great way to reuse existing skills in, in this new style. Yep. Yeah. And you could actually run the MS Dev show on the edge if you wanted. That's a, that's a spoiler for a future episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> but you can run the MS Dev show on your IoT Edge if you want to. <laughs> uh, up next, uh, the the uh, general availability of Azure Time Series Insights. Raygun gives... Hold on, scrap that. You've heard this ad way too much. Raygun is giving us an awesome chance to give away a free year's startup plan of Raygun reporting. In addition, three runners-up will win swag packs and t-shirts and other freebies. You definitely want some of that. What do you have to do? That's a simple thing. Just let us know. What's the biggest programming fail you've ever seen? What's the nastiest bug you've ever caught? Let us know. Email us at feedback at msdevshow.com. Contest ends at the end of November. Hurry up and get it in now. Yeah. um, So for those of you not familiar with Time Series Insights, that's an Azure service where if you have Time Series data, which which was explained to me in a brilliantly simple way. Uh, you have data that has a timestamp, isn't necessarily time series, but if that time series is an important uh, axis, if you graph it, then it's time series. So if you have that kind of data, uh, time series insights is a way that you pump your data through it and you can get a bunch of uh powerful visualizations and some AI and ML work done on it uh, for you. And there's a storage aspect of it as well. And at the end of the day, whatever insights you glean out of this, you can actually expose through an API on the backside. So there's this one uh, Azure service that's really doing four functions at once, and it makes it really easy to uh, gain, glean new data or, or insights out of the data that you already have and ingest that into your uh, existing applications. Yeah. And if you ask it to like, Hey, show me a hundred thousand values between this date and this date, it's just like, okay, it, it's like a, a fraction of a second and it will be able to answer that, that query, uh, which is, uh, which is really truly powerful for doing, you know, data exploration. And, and if you uh, are, interested in this, you go to the time series insights information page. Mm-hmm. There is a link on there that will let you play with a kind of live demo. Oh, so if you're, yes, uh, oh, it's, it's really handy. Yeah. I saw the link. I was going to check it out, but it ran out of time before this, but, uh, definitely going to be checking that out within the next few days. Okay. Well, in the interest of time on the show, I'm not going to do that now. <laughs> um, so we're getting into the home stretch here. So what else we got from connect visual studio app center? Yeah, and uh, I believe that this one was uh, we we've talked about before as the mobile services or mobile center, and uh, this is essentially going GA. Um, all the good things that you need to to build your app, create your app, monitor your app uh, as a mobile app are all built to one, and it comes with a, a shiny new fidget spinner logo, <laughs> as I like to call it. Nice. <laughs> So if you if you look at the the new office logos, you know they have a same style to it, but this one looks like a fidget spinner to me. So okay, um, Apache Cassandra API for Azure Cosmos DB, that's cool. Yeah, I thought you would think that was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not a whole lot of news on that itself, but if you're using uh, Cassandra and you want to kind of start hooking into Cosmos, now you can do it a lot more quickly. 
Yeah, it's pretty much. Yeah. So formally, I mean, you could, well, I shouldn't say formally still to this day, you could, you could do like, uh, you could have like a MongoDB interface to Cosmos DB. Um, but this is just providing another option there. If you have an application that, that is you know currently using Cassandra, or if you're creating a new application and you want to use that API, uh, you can do that now, which is pretty cool. Um, we also announced, uh, Azure Databricks. This was interesting. Yeah. Do you want to cover this one a little bit more? I think you uh, know this one a little bit better than I do. (laughs) No. So Azure Databricks, um, I'm still kind of digesting what it actually is, but we've actually worked with like some of the the, um, Apache Spark founders. And it's basically uh, like hosted Apache Spark is my is my understanding. Um, so it, it manages the entire Apache Spark platform for you. Um, so if you are interested in Apache Spark, which is pretty awesome for, for like writing these, these queries that you execute uh, super quickly, um, there's a lot of people that are uh, using Apache Spark. Um, this is one that, that, you know, kind of blew everybody's minds whenever we saw it. I mean, we already have uh, HD Insight, which allows you to run this big cluster. Um, but this one is specifically focused on uh, on uh, on Spark and, and having a really great experience there. Um, and then our last story here, Microsoft is joining the MariaDB Foundation. Yeah, so I actually didn't know much about MariaDB uh, before this announcement, but apparently MariaDB is a fork of MySQL that is just way better. Um, It's maintained by some of the people that were part of the original MySQL database project, and now uh, Microsoft is joining the foundation. So that's pretty exciting as well. Cool. I got my time series insight up and running now. <laughs> I am I am exploring <laughs> my data. Yeah, see right here, streaming complete 43,000 events. And uh, you just it, you work with it like it's nothing. It's so cool. Wow. Yeah, and we lost Jason for the rest of this episode. Yeah, I got hundreds of thousands of values on here. And did they take out? Maybe it was only whenever it was private. Um, so there used to be a little indicator here that said the amount of time it was taking. Uh, it was just kind of cool to see that internally. I think it's gone. I think they took it out now. But needless to say, it's it's like a you know it's like a fifth of a second to run these uh, these massive queries. Okay, is that all we got for connect announcements, Carl? Yes, so much stuff. I mean, there's like something for everybody. That's the way I feel. And, and we di- we didn't even cover everything. So no, no, this was just like. I mean, there was there was there was the new SQL um, operations uh, mm-hmm. tool to replace uh, yep. SQL uh, SSMS. Yep. So, uh, tons of stuff, but we can't cover it all. Yep. Yeah, he really. You really have to watch like the 16 hours of video content if you really want to see it. Uh, but we won't bore you with that right here. Okay, so let's talk to Jared about Mile of Music and this application because I I thought this was kind of interesting the the melding of you know mobile and cloud and beacons and and all of this other stuff. So so Jared, can you give us an overview? I guess we should start with like what is Mile of Music itself, and then we'll talk about what you guys built. Sure, uh, and it's probably best to start with an overview because the a lot of what we have to do for Buy the Music is because of sort of the, the circumstances that we're working in here. So just quick overview on Mile Music. So uh, Mile Music, it's a music festival. Obviously, we have a lot of them in Wisconsin, not as big as Summerfest, but we're trying to get bigger as year beyond year goes. Uh, this year, we just celebrated year five, so it's fifth year doing this. Um, interesting factoids about the festival, um, specifically focuses on like American inspired music or Americana, I guess is, uh, the, the term I've used certain times. Um, festivals 100% free other than going to all the venues and buying your beer and whatever you need in order to, to sustain, sustain yourself. But other than that, uh, no cost for the festival. Um, and it, it has a very strong focus on, um, 
uh, well, we bring in a mixture of uh, local artists that are in the area. Some of them are national, but um, the big thing is everybody pretty much signs a waiver that says uh, no doing covers of other people's work. Uh, the festival wants to focus on people bringing in their own new music, uh, oh, that's new styles of music uh, into to the festival and really showcasing that rather than saying, hey, I can do a Led, Ze- Led Zeppelin cover, you know, look at me go. Yeah. Um, so pretty much this happens over the course of about three or four days, first or second weekend in August. We take over about 70 venues in downtown Appleton and uh, just have a grand old time with that. Um so th- with that in mind, uh, what we've done with uh, a Skyline is we build a My Music app. Uh, it's, we're at about two or three years of iterations with it now. Um, and really the main focus of it is providing anybody who's attending the festival with information on the various venues, the artists, um, whatever the concert schedule is. And especially with what we had this past year was especially important because we had a lot of rain during the festival and some of our um, venues are actually outdoors. Uh, So we had a lot of rescheduling, a lot of those things, and we were actually able to um, give people live updates of when the venues were changing um, using the the Mile Music app. Um, I I know this year they uh, did some really cool things with it um, as far as being able to uh, sample uh, music from the various artists. They had a pretty much a bun, I think, where you just say, you know, give me five artists and I'll give you five songs from five random artists and then from there you can kind of build your own schedule over time of uh, what, what bands you want to go and check out. Because a lot of this, again, is focusing on um, getting the opportunity to see new bands that you wouldn't normally see at, uh, at Summerfest or some of the other festivals. And, and I know right before this episode, Jason downloaded the app and was kind of amazed by yep. that feature itself. Uh, he, he was listening to several different uh, bands and be like, wow, I would never listen to that or hey that's actually kind of cool yeah i just so. clicked on artists and then i click clicked on an artist and then the music's to oh i muted my phone now but yeah i started uh listening to uh listening to them which is which is a pretty cool feature um because it's like oh i should you know i should check them out now your location like i can see in your background there i don't know if it, it'll probably get cut off in the in the end product here but um like you're if, if they were playing right now like if it was mile music i assume you could hear it from where you're sitting right now Oh yeah, I'm. I mean, the one of the biggest venues, Houdini Plaza, is right outside the window yeah. from here. Um, there's two or three other venues within about a 300 foot rock from here, so it's it's very concentrated. Where we pretty much are actually within about a mile stretch of, of College Avenue. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I, I know that there's a, a few other really cool. Uh, pieces to that. But before we get to some of the cool things, you want to kind of just talk about some of the technologies and architecture of this app? Like, you know, what are, what are the main technologies that, that are being worked with both on the, you know, to make the app itself and to support it, like any cloud infrastructure there might be? Sure. So this, I'm going to try and give the best information I can because I'm more involved on the data side rather than on the, the app development itself, but I, I dig into it a little bit. Um, so my general understanding is um, most of this was built on uh, using Hockey App. Um, so a lot of the code was contained within there, and that's what we were using to uh, keep track of version control and uh, ultimately push it out to the, uh, I believe we just had it in the Apple Store and uh, Google Play. Um, aside from that, I actually don't have a lot of information about the, the core architecture of um, what it was used. I th- 
I want to say it was Xamarin based, but that's secondhand knowledge. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so what, what is the, the, you know, speaking of the, the data portion of this, so like, how does this work? Cause I noticed, you know, I opened it up with, you got venues in here, you have, um, the artists, you have, you know, all this other information in there. So is that just like a SQL database on the back end? Um, so some of that is, uh, I want to say they just have, uh, some JSON files sitting out in blob storage that, uh, oh, the, <laughs> the app itself is referencing directly. Yeah. Um, we have, we have the data duplicate a little bit and for some of the analytics that we do, which I was more involved in, mm -hmm. um, we, uh, pull the data out of the JSON and actually store it in SQL databases and such for some, uh, post-mortem analysis we've been doing. But I believe the, the base data sits out in just some JSON files and blob storage. Yeah, sometimes that's just the, the easiest way to do it. I always I always tend to overthink and over-engineer these things and have like this massive database when now I can just throw like a piece of JSON out there and just call it a day. So so you mentioned post-mortem analysis. What kind of things are you collecting uh, and, and what are you doing purposefully so that you can make decisions after this event has happened? So actually, um, if you want to see what we have uh, so far, most of our uh, analytics are actually publicly available. Um, so if I, I'm not sure how best to send this to you, but I do have a link to our current website okay. where we have all of our data yep. store. Okay. And we'll make sure that goes in the show notes. Or we can send it right. on Skype. Because one of the one of the things we were trying to focus on this year was uh, we we sometimes try and use our our mile of music initiative as a uh, a way to um, try and be a little more authoritative with how we can present data. And so our one challenge was this year was uh, some different approaches to uh, uh, pushing data out to mobile. And so. Um, Uh, so what we actually did this year was we just built, uh, push out a basic um, Azure website um, that we pushed Power BI content to, and we actually embedded it within the web page. Um, and that's pretty much what we have up until this point. We've got uh, some more analysis we're um, trying to come up with for the time being, uh, but for right now, this is what we have. And I guess... Uh, you know, in general, the things that we're mostly looking for really boils down to two things. It's um, one, we want to be able to see how well the app is performing and how people are actually utilizing the app as they're attending the festival. And then uh, the other part, which has been um, the, the more interesting challenge for us in recent years is um, unlike other festivals like Summerfest and such, where you've got your your base grounds where you need to, to pay to get in and then there's uh you know a confined area that everybody belongs in and you know if you're in there you're a part of the festival um what we do with milo music is much more freeform like i said we've got 70 different venues but we're just a it's a bunch of random buildings in uh downtown appleton so there's there's no real like ticket analysis or or those other data points that we would normally be able to rely on to see how well is the festival being attended. Um, so one of the things we do, and this is where the the beacon technology comes in, is we use uh, beacons essentially to help us track um, how people are actually attending the festival, what concerts they're going to see, things along those lines. Okay, so so just so I understand the the beacon, so. You know, those get placed 
at, at different locations, I assume, did you put them at, at where each artist was? Yeah, so essentially, um, due to, to budgetary constraints, we don't get quite <laughs> as much coverage as we'd like. Yeah. Um, but the, the general gist of it is, um, yeah, we, we buy these beacons. They're like uh, 20 bucks a pop. There's, I don't know, five or six different vendors I think I've seen out there. Wow, those are those um, actually pretty expensive. Beacons. Uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty expensive, but as long as you can keep track of them, um, long-term it, it's, uh, pretty well worth the effort. Um, so essentially what we do, we take a beacon, we, we place it at a venue, um, and pretty much the beacon will sit there for the, the course of the festival. And all it's really doing is it's sending out a Bluetooth signal that says, Hey, I'm a beacon, you know, I've got such and such an ID here, you know, you know, I'm here. Um, so then what we do with the beacons is um, the Milo Music app that we designed is configured, um, assuming Bluetooth is enabled on the phone, which is uh, one caveat, at least for the app right now. Um, There's the, only beacons. Yeah, yeah, pretty much things along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, ours are a little bit like trapezoidal and they're, I don't know why they're designed that way because nobody looks at them anyways. Um, <laughs> but uh, essentially the, the beacon just sits there and, you know, anytime somebody is actively using the Milo Music app within range of Bluetooth, so, you know, 30, 40 feet, depending on battery signal, um, the app will go and detect that there's a beacon in the area and basically says, okay, I see beacons here, give me your ID. From there, the app actually sends it out to uh, an API that we have sitting up in the cloud. Uh, it's uh, essentially, well, it's an event hub for the time being. Um, so we send the messages out to the event hub, and then uh, we've got a, a workflow after the fact that uses uh, stream analytics, uh, an Azure SQL database, and we didn't have it in place this year, but we've used uh, cloud services in the past for some real-time analysis we were trying to do during the festival as well. Um, ultimately, then trying to you know glean all of that data, um, store it in the database, and then be able to do the the postmortem analysis that we're we're working on right now. Okay. Um, so, how many beacons did you actually have then? Uh, so this year, I think we had about fifty. Okay. I think so. So Which we still had, pretty good. Yeah, we had about three quarters of our venues covered, and this year we just focus on the the venues that were either more important to the the organizers of the festival or the ones that we expected to have more of a draw um, for the festival as a whole. Mm-hmm. So we we got about three quarters of the the venues covered this year. Okay. So the app knows. I I just haven't worked with beacons yet. So the the app like sort of gets an event whenever it sees a beacon then. Pretty much, yeah. It, it gets an event um, that says, I was near this beacon, um, it, and it gave me this ID. Um, and like I said, then it sends it off to the API. And in the workflows we have later on, then we further define, okay, this ID correlates to this beacon, which is actually sitting at this venue. Because the beacons themselves aren't GPS aware mm-hmm. or geographically aware. Um, so at least the ones that we use, you have to... Um, in your own metadata to find where this beacon is going to live and then make sure that the beacon actually ends up where it's supposed to be. That actually brings up a good point. Why not just GPS locate them? My guess is probably, well, more than likely you'd need more expensive beacons in order to pull that no, off. I'm, no, I'm saying the the users. <laughs> just, add, you know, the app uh, could just request oh. the location. I mean, I, I, the biggest adva- disadvantage I could see is people just turning it off. You know, versus the number of people yeah. that have Bluetooth on. No, that that's a good question, and we have had that discussion in the past. Um, 
I think part of the issue we've run into with that, um, among some other things that we've done with um, the app, is as it was as it was explained to me, um, the the stores that you're publishing your app out to, mm-hmm. um, for some of these things like paying attention to people's GPS. Or um, like some of the things we wanted to do this year and we didn't get around to was asking them for uh, some demographic information. So we had more metadata for uh, any of the analysis we would do after the fact. Um, when you submit your app to the store, sometimes you need to justify um, your reasoning for why you're asking people to do these things. Because especially the GPS and such, um, yeah. it can be more of a, a draw on people's batteries um, which can become a concern um, for the store because they don't want to put, you know, an app out there and then people download it and then everybody complains that, oh, gosh, this drained my battery in an hour. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily the best experience. So for us, um, at this point, it hasn't um, made enough sense or we haven't been able to make enough of a point to say, hey, let us just tap into their GPS information. I think the other thing we struggle with too is sometimes the venues we have to find are so close to one another that depending on how good their signal is, um, we may get some conflicting results on this person. Their GPS says they're at this venue when actually they're next door. Yeah. Because um, sometimes our venues are so close and that could come up. Yeah. So I, I was looking at this link that you sent me uh, with the with the Power BI thing. And I think it's kind of cool because uh, there's some things on here that I would never think of, um, like total miles walked by fans between venues and total calories burned, uh, stuff like that. Uh, definitely metrics I would not think of doing. I immediately go to uh, like which which venues are popular or yeah. like which ban- which bands are popular and try to figure out maybe how to space them you know, optimally for, for the oh. next year or something for something like that, or, you know, like kind of, you know, seeing how people move throughout there. If, if people kind of just went from one to another, or if they went directly to bands that they were interested in, you know, I, I never would think of having these kinds of, uh, of data and stats to be able to put up. What are, um, is, is there any other kind of interesting stats that uh, you've seen or been able to derive that you just aren't showing uh, on this uh, page here? So some of the things that we had going on in the one page I've especially like looking at, and for whatever reason, the content isn't on there, which I'm a little curious why, um, which is the, the travel tab. Um, we were utilizing um, one of the custom visualizations that are available in Power BI. I think it's just called Flow. Um, but essentially what we were doing is... Um, we were able to uh, assign anonymous IDs to people and then go ahead and say, okay, this ID showed up at this location at this time, and then later on they showed up at this venue oh, yeah. like so many minutes later. Um, and so we were able to, uh, like we, we don't keep track of any personal information, but at least generally we were able to see, okay, a lot of people started at this venue and then they kind of spread out. And then they went to um, another one of the big venues for this big concert, which has been really popular in past years. Um, things along those lines. So the the travel tab was certainly showing that. Um, I know the other one, which um, doesn't really utilize the beacon data, but it utilizes our other main source of data, which was app usage, um, is uh, like the last two or three tabs for application insights and timeline. Um, was really neat for us to see 
because um, the the uh, organizers were interested in seeing okay people are going into this app stores they're downloading our app um, you know geographically you know can we get some idea of where most of our our users are coming from um, and so there you've just got a basic uh, a map of the world that shows um, just a dispersal of where all of our our users are that have downloaded the app or at least from the data that we could get from their phones um, you know, like what's their their home base? I don't remember how exactly it's defined in in the phones themselves, uh, but at least gives us some idea of where these people are coming from to come and attend our festival. Aspose offers a powerful set of file management APIs with which developers can create applications, which can create, open, edit, and save the majority of popular business file forms. Their product range supports a multitude of file formats, including Word documents, Excel spreadsheets. PowerPoint presentations, PDF documents, OneNote, Outlook, Project, Visio files, popular image formats, and many others. Aspose produces APIs for .NET, Java, and the which can be utilized in almost any modern language available today. Visit www.aspose.com for a free 30-day no-limitations trial. And if you get stuck, message the friendly support team for help. All technical support is offered free of charge. Remember, if you're a lucky winner, you will receive a free developer small business license for Aspose.Words for .NET, a powerful toolkit to work with Word documents in your applications. I feel bad for like the person that looks at this, and <laughs> I can see artist view count Forte and the uh, their name got cut off here, uh, but they were like uh, Forte and the Pian Pianissimos, <laughs> like they they by far had like the least number of uh, of fans go there, um, and it's a striking difference here because number one was. Uh, smooth hound and smooth hound Smith. Mm-hmm. And they had, they had just a ton of people go to that. It's kind of neat too. Like yeah, by location here, you can see like who went where, um, Oh, I love this too. You can see there's like a, a line chart showing, you know, what people are going to over time and like when it peaked, this would be great. What I would use this for is I would figure out what the best time to go is, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, when nobody else is there and when, uh, when the, the good artists, uh, are, are playing. Yeah. Yeah. And I know especially like that, that's some of our plans for, for long term is, and I've been looking to do, um, especially this year, is see if we can do some sort of, of capacity analysis. And that's why I think it was especially interesting, some of the articles you were showing around um, IoT Edge. Because mm-hmm. uh, right now, up until this point, um, we've just been using an event hub because at this point, we're just using the phones as a point to collect data um, that we can use for analysis later on. Um, but just thinking of possibilities of, you know, if we can uh, use just a, an IoT hub or use the IoT Edge hub to say, okay, um, the the phone detects that they're near this beacon, which is actually this venue, um, and give them a notification that says, hey, you're nearby. Uh, the band you're hearing right now is actually this band. Um, could be some really interesting opportunities to give people more exposure as they're moving around the festival. Um so that they they get more of that information up front rather than you know having to uh, you know hear some good music and then pull out their phone and try and navigate through the app yeah. to find the the specific um, schedule entry for who's playing right now. Yeah, actually, this reminds me a lot of um, whenever you had amusement parks. You know, they're getting pretty smart with their apps, and they'll actually give you notifications like, "Hey, you know this 
this uh, ride that's you know very in demand is uh, the line is unusually short right now, and and they'll they'll give you that kind of information, which I think is pretty cool. Um, so they can sort of do load leveling too across uh, across the crowd. So it's pretty cool, just making just making an event much more efficient. Um, actually, that brings up a good point. I don't know has um, you know has Skyline ever considered you know I, well first of all is is this open source or is this closed source? Um. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Because um, my, my follow-up question was going to be around, like, you know, taking this code base and allowing other people to kind of use this for different events. I think that would be kind of neat. Yeah, I'm. That that's been our thought is if we can come up with just a basic architecture for like this. You know, there are lots of festivals out there that could probably benefit from being able to do this kind of analysis. Yeah. Um. So I I could see a lot of value for that. I don't know right now what the plans are if we would go open source with this or not. Um, I'm not in the position to answer that question. So <laughs> I, I would have to say, I think it's something worth considering, but at this point, I, I don't know what the thoughts are along those lines. Okay, cool. Anything else you wanted to mention on the, on the app or the architecture or the, the data design? Um, I think the, you know, certainly for us, uh, the, the, the data analytics that we've been pulling off of this has evolved over time. Like the the application insights that we pulled in this year was brand new for us. And the the amount of insight we were able to get from app insights alone this year um, has been phenomenal. It didn't really require a lot of effort for us to get that up and running. Um, but still, the information we've been able to glean for it has been really useful. And I think the organizers will be getting um, a lot of value out of it. Um, I think a lot of the questions that have been asked here about, um, you know, uh, using GPS signals for in place of some of the beacons and that, uh, for some of the analysis, you know, we'd like to be able to shore up these numbers a little bit better so we can, you know, get more accurate counts of miles, walk, calories burned. You know, those would all be be interesting things um, for us to see. But ultimately, um, you know, I, I think right now... Um, the the way that we've been able to utilize cloud architectures and app insights in order to get this data out and immediately available to users and ultimately to the organizers um it's just a a testament to the the roadmaps of um some of the technologies we're using here the iot um the power bi for the stuff we're doing here for analytics um I, i think there's a lot of of cutting edge technology that's part of this solution. And um, it's really neat to see it all come together for this specific use case. That's a great point. Cause I, you know, you mentioned using event hubs for the ingestion. Um, I think that's pretty cool because obviously this event is very seasonal <laughs> as in it only takes place during five days. Um, people aren't attending days that are not those five days. So, right. you know, you're, you're basically, you know, so because of the cloud, I mean, you're basically paying nothing to run this thing in the off season. And then during the event itself, um, you know, event hubs can sort of buffer that data. And then on the back end, you can just scale it up to sort of get caught up. So it's, it's like, you don't even have to be in a rush to, to even scale this thing. You just sort of let stuff happen. And then you just monitor and say, ah, look, our scale wasn't right at all. Let's make some adjustment adjustments. Actually, you know what? Let's go get lunch first and then we'll make adjustments when we get back. <laughs> like you don't even have to be in a huge rush. It just all it changes really is like your your analytic process at the at the end of it. So that's well, that's kind of yeah. Cool. Yeah, and especially for us, the the fact that we've had it in the cloud has made it so easy for us because the um 
obviously since the festival really only happens for five days, yep. we don't get a lot of opportunities to do load balancing or see once we get production size data, how is our, our app and our, our infrastructure going to respond? And I know within the past few years, we run into situations where, um, you know, one part of our solution just couldn't keep up and... But since it was in Azure, it was very simple for us to say, okay, this is the our 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 current issue. You know, let's increase the resources on this. It takes a couple minutes, and suddenly we're back up and running as if nothing happened. Exactly. Very cool. Okay, let's move on. Uh, let's see here, Carl. What do you have for your dev tip of the week? Well, you have one, and I have one, and we'll see. We'll see who whose is better. So <laughs> I I recently was in a spot where. I have a bunch of links that I want to send to somebody and, or like they're on a web page and, um, I want to get them into something that's like into Slack or a text editor. And a lot of times if you copy them and paste them, you only get the text out. You don't get the actual link, something that somebody can, can click on. And I found that to be really annoying. So I found that there is a Chrome extension, which will let you copy as Markdown. So you'll get the link text and the link of the link itself. And you'll be, when you paste, um, what was put in, in the, in the clipboard was the Markdown itself instead of just the raw text. So when you paste that, you can get exactly that. In addition, this does a lot more. So if you, um, if you want all the tabs that you have open, you can click a button and you get all of the, the links to all of the tabs that are open as a list in Markdown. So you can uh, easily send everything you have open to uh, somebody if you're doing research on a, a particular topic as well. So it's a pretty handy uh, extension. Very cool. Okay. So I was, uh, this is a, uh, a bit of a teaser slash spoiler. I was containerizing our website, you know, once again, and uh, I was I was heavy in Chrome looking at the requests that were happening. And I was like, man, our, our website just makes tons and tons of requests. And uh, I mean, it was making somewhere in the order of like 120, 130 requests. And I was like, what are these? I don't even know what these requests are. And I kept looking and, and they were like these weird, like RD, RD, what is it? RLCDN. So RLCDN. Uh, there was this other one. Uh, I started like, you know, searching for these sites and these are all like super shady sites. I'm like, oh man, do I have a virus or something? Uh, but I would, I would switch to a different Chrome profile and it wasn't happening. I'm like, what is going on here? What was going on was my, you know, thankfully I run ad block. Like I, I, I really don't feel bad anymore about running ad block <laughs> um, because it was basically pr protecting me from this here. What was going on in a nutshell was, you know, we use discuss for the, the comments on the MS dev show site and by default uh, discuss is like one step away from a virus. If you don't actually go in and like reconfigure it, um, it literally, like I said, it was adding, it was adding about 60 extra requests to our site. It was basically loading like these one pixel by one pixel invisible GIF GIFs, uh, from like every imaginable tracking site. Cause they're clearly selling this data to like anybody and everybody. Uh, so I went into my settings and notice so this is your personal user settings. Uh, so or for I, the site settings. No, for the site settings. So you can't. Okay. So I, I, there is two pieces of this. One is that it, as a user, you can opt out and there is a setting for that. So if you go to your discuss profile, you can go in there. There's a, there's a link to, uh, or there's a place where you can actually opt out from getting all this tracking. And I recommend doing that. And then as a person who has discuss what um, embedded in your website, 
Um, by default, there are two checkboxes. And the first one is enable anonymous cookie targeting for your site's visitors. So this is basically tracking you through every means possible. And then the second check mark is uh, automatically append merchant codes to product links on your site. Um, so yeah, so they're, they're trying to profit off you in like all these different ways. And like, and I get it. Like if you don't know what the product is, like you are the product. I mean, this is a good example of that, but I don't know. It just, for whatever reason, like the, the fact that I was pretty convinced that I had some kind of virus and then it turned out was just these default settings. It just feels super slimy. And they, they like, they sort of address this on Twitter and they're like, oh, well you can pay us and I don't know, do something, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I, all I went in, I turned off these two checkboxes and it seems like everything is better. Um, it still doesn't make me feel great about using their service. Um, I mean, from, I, I'm, I'm trying to see it from their perspective. It could sort of legitimate, like they have to make money somehow and they are providing a nice service and, and that whole type of thing. But man, this just felt like egregious to me, like 60 extra requests, you know, slowing down our page renders. And, um, I don't know, the whole thing just felt super, super slimy and really not upfront to me. Um, so definitely go in and change those settings, or I even recommend just removing discuss. Um, I don't really have a great replacement. Some people on Twitter mentioned some things. Um, I'm considering my options. I guess now that I found those settings, I'm a little more inclined to just leave it on there, but turn off the the evil stuff. Uh, but who knows what other evil there is in there and who knows if they're going to turn it back on. Um, and I did go in and actually configure a new site uh, through their system. And it does turn these evil options on by default. So it's not like you know, I bumped one of them or something like that. Um, and I don't remember, you know, ever seeing these when I first set it up. And in fact, whenever I created a new site with discuss, it felt like they were intentionally keeping me from this. Um, cause they would show a different set of options like, Oh yeah, it's so easy to configure. Let's get this embedded in your site. And then you go back and you like have to click on your profile and click on settings. Like you really have to hunt to sort of find these settings after the fact. So I think that most people have these on. I mean, if I had to guess, it's probably like 90% of people who are using discuss have this turned on. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, it, I think it, it seems like ad block effectively blocks this as well. And, uh, I don't know. I don't feel bad about running ad block in this case, you know, cause it's not like, like we have some ads on our, you know, on the MS dev show site, but I don't feel like they're, I don't, I don't feel like they're crossing a line and, you know, our great sponsors help support the show. And, the, and I don't know, I, I guess we're, we're upfront with it and it, it just feels a lot different to me, but, um, I don't know if you have any feedback, you know, email to feedback at msdevshow.com or, or send us a tweet. I'm kind of curious what your, your thoughts are on this, but if you search for, um, you know, if you look online at this, um, there's tons of, uh, blog posts where people are like, I'm dropping disgust because of this disgusting behavior. See what I did there. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to give, <laughs> sorry, I just wanted to give everybody uh, a heads up on that. Okay, Jared. So we play a game on this show. What I need you to do is pick a number between one and four inclusive, and it can't be three cause we're out of threes. Um, <laughs> Two. Two. Okay. Two is allowed. Okay. Right. Although we don't have a lot of twos left. So let me find a let me find a two. Let's play some music here. Do, 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 do. Oh man. I think we're gonna have to get more cards soon. Oh here we go. Oh no, I do have, I have an X on that one. Here we go. Okay. While at the top of Mount Everest, would you rather lose your hat or lose your goggles? Oh, goggles, easy. I, I'm a big fan of hats, so for me losing a hat is an atrocity. Yeah, but then your eyeballs are going to freeze. 
yeah, I, I'm kind of willing to accept that. Yeah, you have to a keep hat, like the yeah. the head temperature. Like for me, I I have like one of their like Mad Bomber hats that's just nice and woolly and like covers my entire face. I even have a, flat a woolly that bomber comes hat. Over my yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Like you get one of those, like goggles fall off. I don't think I'd worry too much. Yeah. I don't know, because, you know, like, don't you lose, like, tons of heat through your head? So I, I would agree with that. If it was more like um, gloves, then I would probably take gloves over goggles, but goggles before hat. So, <laughs> uh, so Carl, I don't want to waste another question on you. So why don't you just answer the same one? <laughs> so <laughs> they're, they're a scarce resource now. <laughs> so like, I would say hat, goggles hat as well, but mostly because oh, you're going to say bald. Oh, you're going to keep your hat, you mean? I'm, I'm going to keep the hat. <laughs> okay. Because because I'm bald. But I, I have heard uh, some stuff. You mentioned you lose more heat through your head. I think that is kind of an old wives' tale. I believe I think it. they've That's done That's why research. I didn't want to say it with authority. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily the truth, but because I have no hair up there, I think that becomes a little bit of priority. Yeah. I was just going to say, you don't lose the most. So the first result, but of course, you know, this is just random. It's a uh, fake. It's on the internet. <laughs> I always joke that with my wife whenever she, she always comes to me with like these crazy over the top stories. I'm like, where'd you read that fake news.com? <laughs> but anyway, so um, it says here. It feels like more heat escapes through some places more than others. Da, da, da. Your head, face, neck, and chest are up to five times more sensitive to temperature changes. Uh, let's see here. Heat loss depends on how much skin is exposed on your body, not where. Okay. So they're saying it's an old wives' tale, which I believe because like I had I had no scientific evidence. It was just something that uh I had heard in like, you know, third grade at some point. So um I guess we haven't proved or disproved it, but, uh, so it's, it's, we're not, we're not sure that we, we lose more through us. We've got that settled. Uh, okay. So Jared, where can people find you? Um, so I think I gave you my, my Twitter handle, which I'm really not the best Twitter user because I just don't get in there very often. Probably best re- way to contact me is my email. Uh, <laughs> first, so jkeen at skyline technologies.com. Um, yeah, so that's J-K-U-E-H-N at SkylineTechnologies.com. Yes. Yeah, okay. I know. It, it's spelled nothing like how we say it, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's life. That's all right. Um, so, yeah, best way would be uh, give me by email. Certainly hit me up on Twitter if you'd like. Uh, I, I might see it someday if I get back out there. <laughs> okay, that sounds, that sounds great. And uh, Carl's also going to have uh, a link to the uh, analytics in the show notes. Right, Carl? Yep. So that people can go check that out because that is pretty cool to explore. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash techie. So Jared, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about the Mile of Music Project. It's very cool. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs>